please, to Acts chapter 13. It might look like we're going to begin a study of numerology, but we're not. Acts 13, 13 through 31. If you're using your pew Bible, that will be pages 1095 and 96. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on to Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when the Lord had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought up, brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose I am, that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilty no guilt worth of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you might speak to our hearts this morning. We may, may we be encouraged, may we be informed, and may we be helped as we see the beauty of salvation in this message. Use your servant for your purpose. In the name of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen.
prophets and elders had come to a church in Antioch of Syria. And they would soon, this small missionary band, would soon be going to Antioch of Pisidia. The two Antiochs that are mentioned in the, old, in the Bible, two different places. So just not to confuse them, we want to clarify. One was north of Israel in the land of Syria, and the other was what was then called Asia Minor is in what is today Turkey. But as they were at this church in Antioch in Syria, after prayer and fasting, as we saw last time we were together, prophets and elders ordained Paul and Barnabas and sent them out on a missionary journey to spread the gospel and ultimately to plant churches. Our scripture text says, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. You remember last time they had already set sail from Antioch to Cyprus, landed there on the eastern shore of Cyprus and worked their way along the coastline, along the south, and came to Paphos, met with people along the way. Barnabas was from Cyprus. And Scripture mentions John. Who is this John there? This is John Mark. John Mark was a teenager at the time of Christ's death. He was a disciple of the Lord, but he was quite young. By the time Barnabas and Paul were on this missionary journey, he was 25 to 30 years old, developing some maturity, some wisdom of age, and they thought it might be a good idea to bring him on to assist them. By the time they got to Perga, they had traveled 300 miles by ship and on foot, 300 miles. We can't really relate to that very much. We don't walk that much. Modern man just doesn't do that. Even the athletes don't walk that, don't run that much. They run a lot. There's some speculation. Why did John Mark leave? Some people wonder, perhaps he was just too young for this, the travel was too much for him. We find out in Acts chapter 15, Barnabas wants to bring him back in as part of the team. John Mark was his cousin. He wanted to encourage, Barnabas wanted to encourage him, but Paul would have nothing to do with it. So Barnabas and John Mark went on another missionary journey, and Paul and Luke went on a separate trip. But we see some things going on here that kind of play out later on in the book of Acts. 
the first missionary journey, which we are looking at this morning, the first missionary journey going out there and back was about 1,300 miles. And by the time John Mark had left them, they had only traveled 300 miles. They went up north into Turkey to Antioch, established some ministry work there, and then moved southeast to Derby and Iconium, and then backtracked the same way they came. We think about, about traveling Half of that trip would have been about 600 miles, a little bit more. It's 513 miles to Orlando or Tampa area of Florida. We have the convenience of modern travel. We can fly there. We can drive there. We wouldn't think of walking it. We wouldn't think of riding a horse all the way there. It's 536 miles to Niagara Falls. It's 471 miles to Central Park in New York City from Cameron, North Carolina. So this wasn't an easy trip. So we, if, if that's why he left and separated from them, John Mark had in his own mind and thinking some reasoning, but it was some disappointment in Paul's mind. Now, Paul, is, that's, that's just introduction. I wanted to let you know what's going on there and some of the dynamics. But there is a message beyond this. Now, Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on to Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation from people, people say it. John and Barnabas came to a synagogue on the Sabbath day to worship. First time they came to this church. And after they finished reading the word, some of the elders came to them and asked them, Brothers, if you have anything to say, would you like to share it? What would happen in American churches today if first-time visitors were, Would you like to share something with the rest of us? We wouldn't see very many first-time visitors anymore. What we want to see here this morning, four points. God's promise, God's long-suffering, God's mercy, and God's victory for the redeemed. This was a gospel message that Paul preached from the Old Testament. If you remember on the road to Emmaus, the Lord Jesus Christ came along, two of the disciples, after his death on the cross and after his resurrection. And the Bible says, that the Lord, before they recognized him, began preaching about the, all the way back to the prophets of the Old Testament, telling them about how Christ was to be crucified for the redemption of men. 
and then their eyes were open. Paul is taking the same kind of an idea, preaching from the Old Testament to present New Testament gospel truth. Paul and Barnabas visited a local church and invited to speak. And Paul begins with God's promise as well as his long-suffering. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. I'm speculating here. I don't know why. Or why would Luke mention this? He motioned with his hand. Maybe after the reading of the word, people started talking and he held up his hand to get them to quiet down. I don't know. This is, a, this is not inspired. This is a bit of trivia that you might know, you might not know. Most of you, some of you are Trekkies. Star Trek fans, you're very familiar with Mr. Spock. Leonard Neboy brought that character to life. Most of you know what this is. Did you also know that Leonard Nimoy was raised a Jew? He's Hebrew. And every Sabbath day, the priest, in giving his final blessing, both hands he would hold up like that. This was symbolic of the sheen, a letter in the Hebrew alphabet that signifies the Shekinah glory. May God's presence be with you. So when he developed this character, that was his salute. I mean, he just borrowed it from his upbringing. And I just kind of scratched my head and wonder, is that what Paul did? Here's a stranger in here. Look, I'm truly Hebrew. You know what this means. I don't know. That's just speculation. A bit of trivia. It's not inspired. But it's interesting. Paul said... Spoke of God's promise, Acts 13, 17. The God of his people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. He's talking about making them great in number. When they came into Egypt, they were a band of about 70 to 100 people. By the time they left, some say there could have been more than a million. Some speculate even more. And the Lord is relating to them, to his audience whom he has never met before. He is just telling them the story they already knew. Without making specific reference to Father Abraham and the covenant promise God made to him, Paul spoke about God's act of redemption when he delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. Because he wants them to see of the true eternal redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. He reminded them that in Egypt they were without help. They were defenseless. Even though they were great in number, they had no army, they had no weapons, they could not fight, and God delivered them. God set them free. Deuteronomy 7, beginning at verse 7, 
The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were least of the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out of a, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hard, excuse me, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondage, the bondage of your sin, the bondage of your rebellion. Not because there was any good in you, but because he loved you. That is a gospel message that we can adore and we can rejoice in. We're reminded as Paul continues in this of, his, of Israel's history and behavior, how God redeemed them, brought them out of bondage. Yet they still were kind of rebellious. We need to examine ourselves and compare ourselves to ancient Israel. Titus 3 says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, most of us here, I'm confident, are believers. But I know, because I'm much like you, I know that there are times in your life where you are fearful, you are doubtful, you just don't feel saved, and you struggle. Not very confident. There have been times in my life when I've come before the Lord quietly in prayer. Lord, I am fool. I am so stupid. Why? What would you have me do? How can I bring you any glory? Sometimes you might feel the same way. You might have the same kind of thoughts. Lord, I, why do you even bother with me? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, you're familiar with these words. The foolishness of God is wiser than the weakness of God, wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in this world to shame the strong. I was encouraged one time and I laughed out loud to myself. When I heard Bobby Balkum say, when God saved me, he took into account my own stupidity. And I knew what he was talking about. So we, our own foolishness, our own weakness, we can't throw that up in the face of God and say, this is my excuse for not being obedient or faithful or confident. That doesn't fly with God. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. We see God's promise to Israel, how he was faithful to that. We can see God's promise to us, you and I. He is ever faithful to that. We also see God's long-suffering with the people of Israel. And we also see God's, Israel's dismissal or God's refusal to believe. Verse 18, the Bible says, About 40 years the Lord put up with them in the wilderness. And you're very familiar with the story of he, the Jews leaving Egypt and going to the Promised Land. Set free from the Egyptians, led out of bondage under Moses, came to the Red Sea, and you can you can read the sarcasm in their words to Moses. What? What? Moses, you brought us out, and there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us in the wilderness to die. In their fear and doubt. They dismissed the promises of God. And yet God was faithful to open up the sea and let them pass by. On dry land. Three days later, they were at the waters of Mara. Couldn't drink it. Complained again. Time after time after time after time. They dismissed the promise of God. And the Apostle Paul used the word he put up with them. Finally, at the wilderness of Paran, again, they were about to go into the land. They sent in spies, and all they saw were giants and would not go in. Your sins, your fears, your doubts will always hinder your growth and confidence in the Lord Jesus. Don't treasure your fears and your doubt. Don't treasure your feelings. Trust his word. Trust his promises. We're living in a day and a time and in a culture that is so opposed to him that if we listen to what they are saying, we can very easily slip and get discouraged. Trust his word.
trust his promise. First Peter, the apostle wrote, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while it need be, you have been grieved by various trials. in order that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We live in a day and a time where it's going to be difficult to keep the faith. Why doesn't God intervene in... Stop this. He is testing your faith. He has put you in the crucible and he is refining, putting a refining fire on your faith. And the Apostle Peter says, your faith is more precious than fine gold. It is precious. It has been God's gift to you to believe him. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. He's talking about that gift of faith that brought you to a saving knowledge. That faith is God's gift to you. It is precious. Don't let it go. Do not desire the things of this world. Do not desire the the treasures of this world, but desire him more. Do not covet the things that do not belong to you, but desire him more. If he's, excuse me, Hebrews 13.5, it is a quote from Moses himself. Let your conduct be without covetousness, but be content with such things that you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has promised to stay with you. Verse 19 of our text, Acts 13, 19 and 20. Paul reminds them of another promise. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. From the time... They came into the Egypt, and to the time they left Egypt, and then went for 40 years in the wilderness, and then for another 5 to 10 years conquered the land of Canaan. It was about 450-year span. And then after that, the, the Apostle Paul reminds him, came the time of the judges until Samuel, the prophet, the last judge. And the people called, give us a king like other nations. God, we could say that God relented and gave them Saul. They, they, they liked Saul. He looked good. He was taller than them. He seemed to be capable. He gave them a very quick, decisive victory over an enemy. Let's make Saul our king. But Saul was their choice. It was not God's choice. Saul became corrupt. Saul refused to believe 
And God would not tolerate that in the king of Israel, so he removed Saul as king and placed David. I have found in David a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. And he promised to David that his throne shall be established forever. God's long-suffering with Egypt, with Israel, brought about a revelation of his grace throughout the Old Testament, a revealing of his mercy throughout the Old Testament, that God is good. No matter what happens, his mercy, his grace is everlasting. God still kept his promise. Verse 23 of our text. Of this man's offering, he's speaking of Christ the Messiah, who was a descendant of King David. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What would you, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent a message of this salvation. Paul is preaching to them about God's mercy. He is recalling to them the promise to redeem. And that Redeemer would be the Messiah, Christ the Savior. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets. Paul is saying that the rulers of Israel during the time Christ was walking this earth did not understand what the prophets were telling. There are over 64 prophecies specifically to Christ in the Old Testament. And every single one of them were fulfilled. Sixty-four prophecies foretold his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection. And every one of them were fulfilled. We live in a time that's so enamored with lotteries and the chance of winning a lot of money. And there are what, six or seven numbers, I don't know, five or six numbers that wins you the big jackpot. And the chances of that are so slim, you have a better chance of being struck by lightning. But the lottery of prophecy in the Old Testament foretelling the coming of Christ, all 64 were fulfilled in their time. 
for those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers because they did not recognize him or understand him, the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled by them fulfilled them by condemning him. The Apostle Paul said he was foretold, it was foretold that he would die. And since they did not understand it, they went ahead and killed him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. They killed him, though he was innocent. When they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Paul preaches about God's mercy in the life and sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Many of the modern day Hebrews aren't quite sure what to do with Isaiah 53. Many of them say it's not talking about the Messiah, it's something else. They can't quite put their finger on it. But you and I understand what it's talking about. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. Upon him was a chastisement from God the Father that brought you peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul was preaching to these people a gospel message, God's promise, God's long-suffering, and God's mercy. And finally, God's victory for the redeemed. In verse 30 and 31, God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who had come with him, and from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. We have victory in Christ Jesus. We have eternal life in him. We enjoy the full benefit of his gospel message. Let us not doubt it. Let us recognize who he is and he is still with us, still dwelling with us, still working in us and through us, still teaching us, still helping us. I'd like to share a quick story as I conclude that I hope you're not offended by the man's politics. I'm not going to mention his politics, but those of you who know him or know of him or know who he was. It's been almost a century ago 
story is told about a small East Coast community, Northeast Coast community that was struggling financially. This is before a lot of the wealthy people would live on the coast. And this small town called an open town meeting to discuss the problem. They needed to raise funds. They needed to have some things done around town. Just a couple of dozen people were there. And in the crowd, there was one stranger. No one seemed to recognize. They didn't know him. They figured he was just some tourist that wandered in. And as they were discussing their issue, he tried to get up and say something, offer some thoughts, and they kind of shut him down quickly. They weren't rude. They just spoke over him and argued over him, and he finally just got up and quietly walked out. And just a few seconds later, someone else who was arriving late to the meeting came in, asking, what was he doing here? Is he going to help us? And everybody else said, who are you talking about? Who was that man? You mean you don't know? That was John Rockefeller. His yacht is down at the pier. In 1915, that man was worth $900 million in that day's dollar. They didn't recognize someone who could help him. They didn't recognize a stranger in the room. Let's not make Christ a stranger in our lives. He has come to be our help, our Savior, our Lord, our Redeemer, our friend, our brother. And he will help. Shall we pray? Lord in heaven, we thank you again for your word and its truth and its power. And we ask this day that we may see you at work in our lives. Teach us, speak to us, and help us, Lord Jesus, for we do need you. It is for your glory we pray. Amen.